They were here before us. Viruses, which are everywhere on Earth. Most of the harmful infections from viruses are minor annoyances, such as with the common cold. Some viral infections, though, can overwhelm our immune systems, including those causing respiratory syndromes, SARS and MERS, that can kill. But our immune system isn't the only way to treat the diseases that viruses cause. So the primary focus of my research is to develop uh, broad-spectrum antivirals, and the hope is that they can be used to not only treat viruses that currently infect humans, but viruses that might evolve to infect humans in the future. On this episode of the American Scientist Podcast, an interview with Tim Sheehan of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's an expert in the type of viruses called coronaviruses, some of which cause deadly respiratory diseases. I'm Robert Frederick, and I began by asking him what makes a virus new. Usually what makes a virus new is that it's just new to us. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually new. It's just newly discovered, but it could have existed for tens to thousands to millions of years, and it just took us that long to figure out what it was and what it could do. What's an example of how a virus becomes new to us? Usually what makes a virus new to us is something called emergence. It's usually characterized by spillover of virus from a wild animal reservoir into humans. There's lots of examples. SARS coronavirus is an example of spillover where the virus that ultimately in, in ended up infecting people had evolved to infect humans from viruses that were found in bats in China. So prior to the emergence of SARS, it didn't really exist as a disease in people because it hadn't yet jumped from bats into humans. So that's really what made it new to us. But this is something that's happening all the time, and some of which probably goes unnoticed just because it doesn't cause like a huge outbreak of disease. Is there something about this particular type of virus, these coronaviruses that you study, that make them particularly adept at doing that? Yeah. So coronaviruses are really good at emerging. And it's happened throughout time. Most all of the human coronaviruses previously had infected wild animals. And one of the things that make coronaviruses really good at jumping into new species is the nature of their genome. So they have their genome is it's an RNA genome. And typically RNA viruses, their replication is error prone. So every time they replicate their genome, mistakes are made. And some of those mistakes can be advantageous and allow them to infect new hosts or be uh, efficiently transmitted in new hosts and cause new diseases in new species. But typically, you know, when you think about newly emerging viruses, most of the time they have RNA genomes. So like the things that get a lot of press, like Ebola virus, RNA genome, avian influenza virus, RNA genome, MERS coronavirus, RNA genome, and even Zika virus. You know, Zika virus has gotten a lot of press. Zika virus, you know, flaviviruses have RNA genomes. So first and foremost, I think if you're going to be a virus that is really good at emerging, you would have an RNA genome to begin with. And with coronaviruses in particular? Yeah, so another the thing about coronavirus is that they infect a whole host of uh, wild animals, from bats to whales to seals to cats and dogs. So because coronaviruses infect all sorts of different mammals all over the earth, 
there's lots of uh, opportunities for those viruses to maybe jump into other hosts to cause new diseases. And that could be from dogs to cats, or that could be from cows to people, you know? Um, so it's not just humans that are susceptible to this phenomenon. You know, it's probably happening all the time. All you need to do is put two animals in the same room, and they could be transmitting some infectious disease from one to the other. Is there something about coronaviruses that make them more likely than other viruses to mutate to cause serious diseases? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, so b before 2002, coronaviruses were more famous to be agricultural nuisances and make turkeys sick and chickens sick and um, cows and pigs sick. And uh, coronaviruses prior to 2002 in humans were just known to cause the common cold. So there were, uh, you know, a couple viruses that maybe since the 50s, 60s were known to cause the common cold in people. And it wasn't until the emergence of SARS coronavirus in 2002, 2003, where it really changed the paradigm for uh, human coronavirology, where all of a sudden there was, there was this virus that could cause severe respiratory disease and kill people. And before 2002, that was not really on the table for the average person because uh, coronaviruses really just, you know, caused the common cold in people or um, made livestock animals sick. So now, what's the target? What are you working on to stop these coronaviruses? So we're trying to uh, take multiple approaches to create broad-spectrum therapeutics. And so what that means is we don't want to just make a MERS-specific drug or vaccine or antibody. We want to try and come up with therapies that will inhibit all coronaviruses. MERS being one of them, SARS being another one, the common cold too? Yeah, yeah. So we want to develop therapies that not only work against viruses that cause the common cold in people, but severe emerging coronavirus like SARS and MERS, but also coronaviruses that might emerge into people in the future. So um, the way that we're doing that is we have viruses that are representative of the genetic diversity of the entire coronavirus family. And so we can basically evaluate therapeutics against all of them, and that gives us decent information about its ability to stop the whole wide range of coronaviruses. So you spend a lot of time in what popular culture might call a hazmat suit. Yes. <laughs> so uh, yeah, all of our work on SARS and MERS and the um, zoonotic coronavirus. So zoonotic coronavirus would be a coronavirus found in bat. So yeah, um, those viruses need to be handled with care. So we do that in a biosafety level three laboratory. And uh, it's basically like a full Tyvek suit um, with uh, a respirator that you wear on your belt that blows sterile air into your um, hood. And so far you've got? So um, for the past uh, two or three years, we've been working in collaboration with a company called Gilead Sciences on uh, an experimental antiviral drug, uh, which uh, is now in clinical development for Ebola. So um, it, it didn't really come online in time to really be used to uh, a great degree during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014. Um, but towards the tail end, it was used uh, under the Compassionate Use Clause uh, in two people who had Ebola, and they are still alive today. 
But one of the interesting things about this drug is that it also works against coronavirus and respiratory syncytial virus and Marburg virus. So it appears to be a broad spectrum antiviral, um, which we really don't have any of on the shelf today. So the hope is that we can continue with the preclinical development and, and um, see how this drug works and the limits of this drug. And with that, we can, I guess, it'll set the stage for this thing to be evaluated by, you know, in humans. Is there any concern like with antibacterials that viruses will adapt and become resistant to these broad spectrum antivirals? So it's a great question um, about um, the acquisition of resistance. And so one of the things that's in our favor is that um, a lot of the diseases that this medication is being developed for are very acute diseases. So like Ebola virus, MERS coronavirus, respiratory syncytial virus. Um, these are all um, diseases that play out over a matter of weeks. So um, the opportunity for the generation of antiviral resistance is a lot smaller than if you're treating a chronic infection like HIV or hepatitis C virus, which, you know, these people are chronically infected and, you know, with HIV, they're being treated for the life of the patient because they, there's no cure. And for hepatitis C virus, it's weeks to months where you're on an our antiviral and that gives the virus a lot of opportunity to um, evolve and try to find a way around the therapeutic. So um, just by nature of the course of disease that we happen to be targeting, the opportunity for the development of resistance is a lot smaller. But um, it's definitely on our radar and um, you can kind of experimentally um, derive resistance and see if the virus is even capable of evolving resistance before you treat a patient. So oftentimes you'll get a feel for if resistance can be generated, how strong um, the resistance phenotype happens to be. Um, and if it comes at a cost, so oftentimes when a virus acquires resistance to a drug, uh, it becomes less efficient at replication or it loses the ability to cause disease in a person or an animal. Uh, it's rare that you have you know, you acquire drug resistance at no cost. That's rare, but it does happen. I think working on therapeutics against emerging viral diseases, it's not, you, you come up with something and it's like a stopgap solution, you know, because, um, you know, time goes on and microorganisms and viruses, they keep on changing over time. So something that works today might not work tomorrow. So uh, even though we've developed a therapeutic that seems to be broadly active against lots of different viruses, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be effective in the future. Tim Sheehan, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Tim Sheehan is a virus researcher at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Robert Frederick. Thank you for joining us. Mm -hmm.